Roxy, I'm just thrilled, honestly. I, I love your teaching, love what you're doing. I can listen to you over and over again, and I do. And I love your tattoo. It brings me great joy. I was going to get one just like it and copy you because uh, I could never find a good reason to have a tattoo. My whole family has tattoos, and they're wondering why I don't have one. And I said, you can't improve perfection. But, uh, but that's pretty awesome. I like it. Bless you. I love you. You're an awesome guy. That's pretty sweet. Hi. Hi. You've been, just, you've been soaking up a lot through the last couple of sessions with Greg. It's been amazing. Um, uh, and so I'm so grateful to just be in a kind of an intimate atmosphere where we get to hang out, get our brains filled and our hearts filled, and then get to ask questions and interact. This is, this is really a beautiful experience. And so thanks for hosting this and for making this possible for us. You mentioned my tattoo, um, so maybe I'll mention it too. You see my tattoo? Uh, when I uh, turned 50, I said, I want to have something that will help initiate Jesus conversations. I want to talk to more people about Jesus before I die. Because when I hit 50, I realized, I'm going to die soon. <laughs> now, it doesn't matter if I live to be 100. I'm going to die soon. And so are you. And it doesn't matter how young you are. You are going to die soon. It's, it's going to go by so fast, you just don't realize it. See, when we're in our 20s, we're like, I'm going to live forever. And then we're in our 30s, and it's like, I'm still in the prime of my life. And then we're in our 40s, and 40s the new 30. And then we hit 50 and say, no, I'm dead. So... <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I realize I'm going to die soon, so I want to do everything I can to, to have Jesus conversations uh, before I die. And I thought, well, one of the things I'll do, and there are a number of changes I made, and one of the things is I'm going to get a tattoo, because in our culture, people often ask questions about your tattoo. What's, your, what's the significance behind your tattoo? I'm not a very creative person, couldn't think of a design, so I thought I'll just get a Bible verse. And I thought, what Bible verse will lead immediately to conversation about the new covenant and Jesus and the change that he brings? And um, is it going to be John 3.16? Is it going to be Hebrews 8.13? Is it going to be, what's it going to be? And, uh, and, and I realized as I was thinking about getting a tattoo, some of my old teaching as a child in church was starting to haunt my brain, which was the fact that a certain Bible verse, specifically Leviticus 19.28, says that thou shalt not get a tattoo. Don't get a tattoo. And I was thinking, well, that is in the Bible. Does that mean that I need to follow it? But then I'm New Covenant. But then I, so I really wrestled with, you know, what should do uh, in light of Leviticus 19.22. And I finally realized what better way to have a conversation about the coming of the new covenant and how that changes everything than to get a tattoo. And so I went ahead and got the tattoo. And in fact, that's the verse I chose. I got Leviticus 19.28, which has started so many good conversations about Jesus. So when people say, oh, Leviticus 19.28, what's that? What does that mean? Oh, I say, oh, that's the Bible verse that says, whatever you do, do not get a tattoo. Well, that leads to a definite conversation about Jesus, and it has really paid, its, uh, paid itself off already in some beautiful kingdom conversations. So that's why that verse is there. I was um, flying down to the States years ago, and um, I got off the plane in the airport, and uh, two things were true. I was nervous because I was going to be speaking at a pastor's conference, a jury of my peers, and I also had to go to the bathroom. And that was, those were the two things that were sitting in my mind, nervous and bathroom. And so I ran into the first bathroom I saw, and I noticed a couple things. First of all, there were no stand-up toilets, no urinals, and I thought, well, maybe it's an American thing. And so I went into, they had lots of stalls, so I went into one of the stalls. I thought, well, while I'm in here, I think I'll sit down, sat down. And I noticed the guy beside me in the stall beside me was wearing high heels and stockings. 
and I thought, well, you know, only in America, so that's fine. And and then I uh, I heard people coming into the bathroom, and there were two people, and they were both women, and they were talking to each other. And and here's the thought that crossed my mind: something that this is sincerely the thought that crossed my mind. Poor dears are going to be embarrassed when they realize they've walked into the wrong washroom. <laughs> Now, you already know something that I still didn't know at that point. I had seen the guy beside me. I had heard the women come, and they came in. They used the washroom. They seemed at home, and then they left. And I thought, isn't that amazing? They just didn't even notice. And really, I was still completely in my own fog until well, I noticed there was this metal box on the wall that I knew I personally had no use for. That it, it wasn't until the moment that I went, what in the world? And this is what happened in my understanding of reality. It went... And what was up became down, what was down became up, and everything reversed. And I was thinking about that today, because I was thinking for some of us hanging out here over the last couple of days, that has been our experience. We've been experiencing the... And things that we just assumed before are now starting to be questioned, and new realities and assurances are starting to take root. And up is becoming down, down is becoming up in some beautiful ways. I mean, we're really realizing the upside down nature of the kingdom of Christ. And, and so I'm excited for you and for me as some of these things are being reinforced. And, and it can be shocking at first, because when you realize maybe you've been seeing things upside down or backwards and you were wrong, that can be unsettling. But it opens the door to something much more beautiful on the other side. And so I was, and by, by the way, I was unsettled when I realized where I was, but at least it gave me the, the good sense to leave. <laughs> and that's a good thing. And so I actually, I, just to conclude the story, for its own sake, I decided I better get out of there, wait until the gentleman beside me was done, and then after he left, I thought, you know, oh, by the way, old thought patterns die hard, right? And I, so I waited for him to go, and then I thought, okay, the coast is clear. No one's in here, because I thought, I was, I, was, I was nervous. I thought, I can just imagine that if someone came in and saw me here, it would be, I'd get arrested, they'd call security, it'd be in the papers, you know, Canadian pastor found lurking in the, in the bathroom of the airport. So I, I waited till the coast was clear, came out of the stall, started walking straight out the door, and when you know, two more women came in, walked in and chatted, they always come in twos, you always go to the bathroom together, that's amazing. And so they come by, and they're walking past me, and they're chatting, and I thought, I'm past the point of no return, I can't run past the stall, I'm going to have to go out, how do I get out of here with, and not get, or have somebody scream? And so I just did this, and I kept right on walking, <laughs> and nobody noticed! I was free! It was a good day. I think I might have seen one of them do a double take, and I thought she might have been thinking, that is the ugliest woman I have ever seen. I don't know, but it, it worked out okay. All right, so we have been talking about uh, the gospel, yes? And the, this is the good news of Jesus. Jesus really sums up the gospel. And so we've been talking about the gospel in one word and three words and in 30 words with Jesus at the center, that Jesus is Lord is, uh, is the, the first creedal statement of the church that sums up everything we believe. And then we've been talking about the gospel in 30 words. And the gospel in 30 words we've been saying is that Jesus is God with us. That would be the next slide. Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion so we can share in God's life. And we said we we're going to work through different aspects of this, talk about what it means to us, 
and also how we can share it with others. And we've said that when we have conversations with others, we can enter the gospel conversation at all different points, different aspects of the gospel. This is just a mental rubric, remember, to help us understand and hold on to the gospel, and we can enter that conversation at different places. And we've also, I, I've said personally, I want to radiate out my conversations from different places here as well, and so we can reverse the arrows. And I've said like every, every conversation I have and every, every, every gospel conversation, every uh, every sermon, if we reverse the arrows, which means the arrows are going in the other direction, which means the next slide. Yes, uh, uh, that, that I want to, in some sense, preach every sermon radiating out from some aspect of this message is my goal between now and when I die. Um, and then we said we'll talk about the specific ways that aspects of the gospel message connects with our human need. And we talked about in our first session, God with us and showing us his love. God with us, we said, really helps us meet our need for courage in a, a fear-based world where often we approach God based on fear. And that knowing that God is for us and not against us gives us the courage to open up our hearts to the rest of the message. And when we do, our, our need for a sense of esteem or value, just that I'm wanted, I'm a wanted person, is one of the first things we're introduced to when we look at the message of the gospel as he shows us his love. And that we see so clearly in Jesus. So now for this session, I wanna try and move on to uh, save us from sin, and if we have time, set up God's kingdom. We'll see if we can do that. First of all, save us from sin. Uh, God meets our fundamental human need for forgiveness. Um, psychologists tell us that we all grow up with some sense of shame some sense of guilt, some sense of being aware that there's a version of me that you don't know. There's a version of me that nobody else knows, and that if you did know this version of me, you might reject me. So when we surround ourselves with a group of affirming friends and encouraging family, we are not necessarily nourished by their encouragement, and by their affirmation, because we dismantle it by saying, yeah, but you don't really know me. You may say how much you love me and be really encouraging, but if you only knew who I really am, you wouldn't be saying these things. So that we are, our sense of value or esteem and our sense of nourishment is thwarted, and we need to know that there's someone who really does know us and really does love us, and for that to happen and to really admit that the stuff in my life is wrong, forgiveness becomes the channel to open that. Because the beautiful thing about forgiveness is it says two things. I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. We're not going to pretend everything's okay. I know it's wrong. And I release you from that. There's freedom. Yeah. Right? Uh, so we don't have to clamor for our esteem by pretending we're something we're not. Forgiveness is the route to then open up to and fully embrace the love that we've just learned about. And we grow up with an ongoing need to be forgiven and to forgive others. That's just a, a fundamental psychological human need. The Bible uh, points us to Jesus. Jesus announces the good news of the gospel, which is a message of forgiveness. Uh, it's forgiveness from sin, and sin is a fascinating word. Let's take a look at uh, the, uh, the word, most common word for sin in the New Testament. Hemartia. Hemartia is the most common word for sin in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. What does it mean? To miss the mark. And this is how it was so often used within the first century. When the arrow missed the bullseye, it missed the mark. So, so sin is to be off course. 
sin is to, um, to not be where you should be. And so sometimes when we talk about sin, if someone you're talking with doesn't like the word sin, you can actually be more literal by not using the word sin and saying, do you ever feel like you're just off course? Do you ever just feel like you're not where you should be in life right now? Do you ever, believe, do you ever feel like you're making decisions that end up taking you in a direction that you know you shouldn't go? And that's a universal experience. Oh, yes, 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 I've always, I've felt that many times. Well, that's what the Bible calls sin. This, but it gets even deeper or richer than that. This, let's look at the etymology of the word. Hamartia is a compound word between two Greek words. Ha is, is a word, a negation word. It just means not. And martia comes from meros, which means to be together with or part of a larger whole. So hemartia in its original etymology means to not be together, to not be connected. In other words, to be separated. And so because the arrow was not together with the bullseye, it came to be used in archery to mean missing the mark. But the actual original root meaning means to not be together. You can say to someone else, have you ever just felt like you haven't got it all together? <laughs> yes, that's called sin. When you just feel fragmented, you feel separated, you feel like who you are is not, the pieces aren't all fitting together very well, or you're, you're separated from others around you. Sin is a, a corrosive factor in our lives that's just pushing us apart from the people around us. Uh, Isaiah 59, verses one and two, Yahweh says, uh, or Isaiah writes, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This idea of separation has been embedded in this idea of sin from early on. So, sin separates. It's the first thing we can say about sin. Sin is a corrosive force that's always separating us from ourselves, from our God, and from one another. All right? Um, Mark 7 is that passage where Jesus says, it's not what you take into your body that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of you. And he says, now to the human heart comes all kinds of vile stuff. He says, all human beings are walking around with stuff inside that can hurt one another. I mean, he says murder and envy and all the, just the impulses of murder. He says, I've never killed anyone. But the impulse, like in Matthew 5, he says, you just get angry at someone or call them a bad name. It's like you kill them. So the impulse to murder is something we may never follow through on, but we all have the seeds of murder in just being angry and judgmental towards other people. Just some people follow through all the way, but have you ever just say, oh, I just wish that person would just disappear? That's the expression of the same root that leads to murder. And so all of these things are inside us, and they can come out all the time in, we could call them micro-behaviors. Microaggressions. We're just always giving each other little nudges away to push each other away. So someone says, uh, "Hey, I missed you last night. Where were you?" And the person can respond, "Oh, yeah, um, I yeah, I was busy." And then the other person says, "Oh, that's a shame." Uh, 
in that little interaction, you had one person's high expectations, but maybe their expectations were too high and they should have been more loving and known that that person was preparing for an exam. The other person says, said, well, uh, I'm busy and didn't really explain or apologize because obviously it meant something to this person, which means then the first person is now becoming judgmental of that person's snobbery. They're such a snob. They didn't even say they're sorry. And microaggressions are starting to pop back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We're separating, separating all the time. And, and so many of our conversations, sin is that corrosive force that the, the tendons that hold the body of Christ together are starting to be torn apart by this, this virus that's just always at work within us. Sin separates. Secondly, sin separates us. It separates us. So the word means to separate and Ultimately, it separates us inside as well as outside. Sin separates us from who we were. Sin separates us from how we were made to be in the garden. Do you remember? We were made in the image of God, pure and faultless, made to love like God, but not judge like God. And we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is really the tree of judgment. I know better. I know what's right and what's wrong, and I am going to become a judge. We were made to be like God in some ways, but not like God in other ways. That's why we need Jesus to show us how to do that. Did you notice it's not just a matter of being like God. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, when you love your enemies, you're, you're being like God in the right way, who brings rain down on the just and the unjust. Be like your heavenly father by loving your enemies. But we're never to be like our heavenly father in trying to be a judge like him. So we need Jesus to help us navigate. It's not a matter of just saying, gotta be like God. I wanna be God-like. Not completely. Because there are ways of trying to be God-like that are idolatrous and wrong. You're not the judge. The position's already taken. So when Jesus goes into the temple and he turns the table and he judges, one of the things he doesn't do is say to his disciples, come on, boys, join me. This is, no. He doesn't teach them to judge like him. Stand back. He's showing us God as the judge. When Jesus, 12 years old, leaves his parents and goes and hangs out at the temple, we, we know as parents don't say to our young kids, listen, it's okay whenever we're in a large and foreign city which is not part of our region, the same country, but not part of our region. It's okay if we're ever in a big city. If you run, wanna run away from mommy and daddy, that's fine. And don't tell us, don't tell us, just go. That's being Christ-like as long as you end up at a church somewhere. That's fine. And we'll look for you, and when we find you, we can't be angry because you're following Jesus. We never teach that, right? Because he's showing us he's God, and, and he's getting away with something we shouldn't get away with. So there are ways we are to be like God, and then there are ways to withhold from God. And we were made to be like God as lovers, and we chose to be like God as judges. But, and so sin separates us from who we were. Sin separates us from, from who we were meant to be. We were not only called to be that in the garden, we were meant to live this way for the rest of our lives as people who give of ourselves to one another and who love and who connect and lay our lives down for one another. And sin continued to se continues to separate us from who we were meant to be. Sin also separates us from who we were meant to be with, and that is ongoing intimacy with the Almighty that we are to be fully aware of and connected with God we're supposed to live in an ongoing state of intimacy, which we just seem to miss. We, and when we, when we have a way of blocking out God's presence, we can, I think, move into a phase of a spiritual panic attack because we're made to breathe spiritual air. Let me, I don't know if I'm being clear. Let me, let me uh, focus our attention on Genesis chapter three. Um, Genesis chapter three is a fascinating passage where the... The serpent comes to Eve 
And we read the passage this way. It says at the beginning, now the serpent was more, what word? Crafty, cunning. It means to be supple or shrewd or sensitive. It can even be a word that's translated wise. If their character is good, the same word gets translated wise. If the person's character is bad, it's translated shrewd. Isn't that interesting? Wisdom is the ability to understand people and a situation and maneuver so that you make a decision that is best for all, and that's good. But that same skill set of understanding people and understanding a situation, if my heart's not good, will tempt me to use my knowledge to manipulate, and I'm called shrewd or crafty. Now, I, I want to say this because some of you have the gift of wisdom. Some of you are very wise. You read people and you read scenarios very well, but your temptation will be to use that in a self-serving way to manipulate people. So, and it's the same word. It depends on whether your heart's right. So here, the serpent whose heart is not right is crafty or shrewd or supple or manipulative. Now that should give us a clue. What we're not expecting is the serpent to come out and to go, and scare Eve into saying, how dare you follow him? Follow me or I will. Nope, he's subtle, smooth, knows how to read the situation. So that gives us a clue for how we are gonna expect him to, to work here. Now the serpent is more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, he starts with a question. This is brilliant. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Some things to remember. Did God really say? He's not making an accusation. He's just asking a question. Hey, I'm just a little confused here. Sorry. Can you engage with me for a moment? I have a question. How can you say no to that? Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Any tree? That's a silly question. It's not only a question, it's a silly question. Did God really say you can't eat anything? Is basically the question. Did God put you in the middle of this garden filled with all these trees and say you can't eat any of them? Did God actually put you here to starve you to death? Is that what's going on here? So it's a stupid question. It's an easy question to answer. And I think that's the point. Remember, he's crafty. He's, gonna, he's lowballing an easy question to answer, to say, no, that's ridiculous. Of course he didn't put us in the garden to starve us to death. He's giving us trees to eat, dummy. It feels like a really easy question to respond to. That's the point. Because this is the first time in recorded human history that anyone has ever asked a question and engaged in a conversation about God rather than to God. All the dialogue up until this point in the Genesis narrative is between God and his creation. This is the first time that now a conversation is initiated about God as though God's not there. It plants a seed. I can't blame Eve, but what would have been ideal is for her to say, well, it's a dumb question, but why don't you ask him yourself? You know what? He's everywhere. He's easy to talk to. But because it was such a simple question, if Eve responds, she'll catch the bait. The question makes a suggestion, a subconscious suggestion. God's gone away and left you here. You're all alone. You have to figure this out on your own. The question suggests that. If Eve responds to the question, she's participating in her own deception. 
God's gone away. I'm separated from him. And that's why the question's so easy to answer. And she responds. And as she starts into this conversation, she is already participating in her own deception. Uh, and so, did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Number two, question, or verse number two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, of course, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So you have, you have the, I, I was um, reading, I, I think it's Bart who was exegeting this and says, some sense you have the first potential seminary which is a place where people to go to talk about God as though he's not there. <laughs> uh, to have theological discourse about God as though he's a distant concept. You have the first seminary founded right here. And then you have the first sermon, which is what Eve preaches. And she says, uh, we may eat from any tree of the garden, but God did say, it's the first time someone's talking about, he's speaking on behalf of God instead of God himself speaking. It's the first time it happens. Uh, God did say you must not eat, or God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. God didn't actually say the, you must not touch it, but like most people who preach sermons, we say too much. First seminary, first sermon. Then we find out Adam's actually there. So you have the first congregate, you have the first service. You have the first seminary, you have the first sermon, and you have the first service. And what do they do at the end of the first service, at the end of the first sermon? They have the first sacrament. They eat of the apple together. And it is, it's almost laid out here as this odd, religious, God's over there, you're over here, we gotta figure this out on our own. And that's the root of religion. We got, God's at a distance. We believe in God. We're passionate for God, but he's way over there, and we've got to bridge the gap. We've got to do something to make it right. And, and, and as Bart and others argue, religion becomes the primordial ooze out of which the first sin comes. But the first thing that happens before Eve sins is the sense of God's not here. And when we have a sense of God not being here with us, we can have a spiritual panic attack. That we, we just begin to sense, even if subconsciously, sense the separation and the decisions we will make after that will often be birthed out of fear or subconscious anxiety. They will lack wisdom. They will lack the calmness and the peace and the rest that we should have in the presence of God. So sin separates us from who we were meant to be with and sin exacerbates that problem so we continue to make unwise decisions. And then sin separates us from who we were meant to be with forever if we do not come to the cleansing of Christ. But the good news is that if we skip ahead slide folks to the Jesus slide, that Jesus is God with us so that we can be with God. Jesus is God with us so we can be with God. Jesus reverses all of this, right? Jesus unites, Jesus unites us. Jesus unites us with who we were and who we were meant to be and who we were meant to be with and who we were meant to be with forever. Jesus is this beautiful fusion of God and humanity to make, 
to make a bold statement that God is making room for us in his heart. Uh, John 1, 14 says that the word became flesh. And do you know, John could have used other words there. Because do you know the word flesh? You understand the word flesh is often used to refer to our sinful side. Right? I've sometimes translated our sinful nature. It's the word sarx in, in the Greek. And, and John really is pointing out Jesus becomes our, our earthy human side. He could have said, and the, the word, the logos, became soma, that's body. And that would have made a good point. He could have said, and the word became anthropos, which means human. That would have been a fine point to make. But he pushes it. He says, the word became flesh. He became your real earthy side, even without sin, without sin, but he became your flesh. He understands your weak side. He understands your weakness. He gets right in there with you in this beautiful way to reunite what has been divided. So Jesus is God with us, come to show us his love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom and shut down religion so we can share in his life. What we have talked about so far in the gospel in 30 words, the first part is what most churches and most Christians who have been Christians for long have been raised to understand as the gospel in full. You're a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Trust in him, you'll be saved. Uh, and in fact, it really started in the West in the 1950s with the four spiritual laws. Anyone remember the four spiritual laws? And they're all true. I just want to remind you of how incomplete we have become accustomed to seeing the gospel. The four spiritual laws. I think we have a slide for that. Four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's an iconic first point. Law number two. Our sins have separated us from God. Law three. Jesus is the only provision for our salvation. Law four. We must receive salvation by faith in Christ. And then a little while later, the navigators came along and they developed the bridge to life as their presentation of the gospel. And also four points. The Bible teaches us that God loves all humans. Number two, but humans sinned. Number three, there is a solution, Jesus. And number four, only those who trust in him can cross the bridge to life. And then Billy Graham Association came up with steps to peace with God. Guess what? There's four points. Evangelicals have a love affair with four points. Step one, God's plan. Step two, humanity's problem. Step three, God's remedy. And step four, our human response. Are you noticing all, they're all different, but they're all covering basically the same four points. Then there was the Roman road. Some of us have used that. Human need, sin's penalty, God's provision, our response, all from the book of Romans. And then more recently, there's been the reformed Romans road, which our Reformed friends have suggested the first four chapters of the book of Romans cover the gospel, focusing on who God is and his holiness, on man. They say man. They don't say humans. They say man. Uh, and chapter two, in our sin, Christ is the focus of chapter three, what he has done for us, and then our response of faith is chapter four. And it's very problem-solution, problem-solution, which is, again, all true, it's just not the whole gospel. More recently, there's been the four, the, uh, a, a movement in Britain called the four, which is taking the same four points and, and uh, using symbols. God loves us, but there's division. I think that's very clever. There's division. But Christ has come, so what are you going to choose? 
And I think it's all so great, but it misses the gospel of the kingdom, which now we're going to move and talk about, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, did you ever draw a little graph or have someone present it to you that had God on one side and us on the other, and there's a big chasm? Here, maybe it looks something like that. And the chasm was called sin. At first, when you draw it, there's no cross there. There's just us standing lonely on one side trying to get across. We don't know how to get across. And whenever this was drawn for me as a kid, this is exactly what it looked like. And it, it said man on one side. And I always thought, what about women? Can they get saved? And I thought, it doesn't matter. I'm a boy, so I don't care. So it was just, you know, man-focused. So then are we getting across? And someone would draw the cross and say, see, Jesus provides the bridge that helps you get across to God. And, and then that created anxiety in me because I thought the top part of the cross is too tall for a pudgy kid like me to crawl over. I'm not very athletic, so this seems as much as a barrier as it does a bridge. So the whole graphic did not work with me, and I had many sleepless nights as a child. But having said that, we would then conclude this by drawing an arrow across the graph from man to God and say, you see, this is our way of getting to God. And I think there's great truth here, but I think we need to reverse the arrow. Okay, the gospel is God coming to us, coming to us and saying, let's start our eternal life right here, right now, together. So I'm not just coming and shouting something at you that'll help get you ready to go to heaven. I'm coming and helping you build something here that's beautiful called the kingdom. And it's not, it's not, made a, it's not a physical or political thing. It is a relational, caring, and loving reality called the kingdom that we're going to build together. We're going to construct together. We're going to spread together and experience together and extend together called the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom, without, the, without the, our understanding of the kingdom and how Jesus preached the gospel, and so did the apostle Paul, we get a, only a, the selfish side of the gospel. How can I get saved so I can go to heaven when we die? But Jesus, right from the beginning, taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the gospel of the kingdom becomes really important. Uh, and it meets multiple needs, I think. If we look at the gospel of 30 words at the next slide, the gospel of the kingdom meets our, our need for purpose and a sense of place and a sense of peace, that I belong somewhere, I'm a part of something, and that gives me a purpose to experience and extend the kingdom. Every morning, you can wake up knowing my purpose today is to experience and extend the kingdom of Christ. And the next day, you wake up knowing that same purpose, to experience and extend the kingdom of Christ. It gives me purpose, it gives me a sense of place and rootedness with my family and fellow citizens, and it's a kingdom that moves forward through peace. It conquers, you know, kingdoms, yes, it's to expand and it's to conquer, but it conquers through love. And the, the, la the, the land that we're conquering is actually just the space of separation between us. And so I'm going to expand the borders of my kingdom. How? By reconciling, by loving those who are different from me. And that's how it expands. We, we acquire new territory as we reconcile, as we love, as we become friends and family with people who are different than us. Now, we've been talking about the phrase kingdom. What is a kingdom? Just to be very clear, a kingdom is a way of living in line with a shared will and a shared way. A kingdom is a way of living in line with a shared will and a shared way. There's one will that unites us. There's one way of living that unites us. And so a kingdom will have its own culture and its own values, but it will all be in line together. 
One of the beautiful things about this kingdom, again, is that it's not something we're saved out of this world into, it's something that comes to us. The line comes in our direction, the arrow is pointing towards us, and the kingdom comes here, and we get to experience it here. Then when we die, yes, that kingdom will be eternalized, but we've already started our experience of the kingdom right here, right now. Um, Put down the mic for a second and invite you to participate in a physical enactment or a representation of the kingdom. When your friends, when you're trying to explain it to your friends, something that you can use. Uh, if we, if hold up one, one arm, your forearm, let's say starting at your elbow is a graph. You can draw this as well, it's, but if you don't have paper, you can do it with your arms. Let's say your elbow is the beginning of the timeline of your life. And as you move towards the timeline, this is your death. You end here. Now, what happens then? Typically, within religious circles, we've been teaching, now you can do this. We've been teaching that, well, at the end of one life, don't worry, you start another life. Which is partly true. Then we have our atheist friends who just say, no, that's the end. It ends right there. Uh, then we have our Hindu friends and Buddhist friends who say, well, you'll go around and it gets confusing. But one of the things that we as Christians have taught is that when this life ends, don't worry, there's another life called the kingdom of heaven and I'll enter it when I die. But no, what does Jesus say? He says this. Yeah, good, good, good. He good. says this. And, and at whatever point in your life you say yes to Jesus as your Lord, you've actually transitioned. Yes. Into a new plane, a new mode of existence. Yeah. You've now begun your eternal life now. Yeah. You just happen to still be on earth for a little while longer. But the ultimate reality is that you are now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. This is your reality. Yeah. Yes. And, and actually, you can just clap this way if you want to. That is, <laughs> no, you don't have to. But you can start, but just do it at the next service. Just do it, and then people who weren't here today will just come and go, what did I miss? <laughs> We've started our eternal life now. So now you can ask the question, what kind of life do I want to live forever? Well, I'm going to start living that life right now. I want to live an eternity of love? I'm going to start living that life now because I've already entered my eternal life. Do I anticipate heaven being a life of peace? Then why would I live a life of war now? I've already started my heavenly life here on earth, so I'm going to begin to live a life of peace now, a life of, of reconciliation. And all that we see heaven should be, I start to live as a foretaste of that now. That changes how we relate to everyone around us. And as, a, as, as a, a, a member of the kingdom of heaven, I have, I have an identity, I have two roles. One is to be a good citizen and one is to be a good ambassador. A good citizen and a good ambassador. Both then are, are things that are talked about in the New Testament as roles that we play as members of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Ephesians 2, 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The new creation has come. And then he goes on to say that God, Christ gave us this ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we employ you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Uh, so let's come back to this slide or go move forward two slides to the 
citizens and ambassadors slide and look more closely at what it means to be a citizen and what it means to be an ambassador. If we're going to be a citizen of this kingdom, then we are going to engage through contribution, participation, and defense. Contribution, participation, and defense. Citizens pay taxes. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Oh, you went quiet there for a second. I, citizens pay taxes. I, citizens pay taxes. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that now we're starting a new taxation system for the church. What it means is right down to your money and your financial contribution, you say, the stuff I have, I invest in, in the kingdom. Amen. Right? I, I, I invest financially in the kingdom of Christ. But it's more than that. I participate. I don't just contribute my money and pay my taxes and then opt out. If I'm a good citizen, I participate in the culture of the country that I'm in. And, and the culture of the kingdom of Christ is the fruit of the Spirit. You know, different cultures, some cultures are more gruff, some cultures are more soft, and some cultures are, uh, are, are just value humor in a, at a different level or in a different way, and cultures are very different. You wonder, what's the kingdom of, cult, uh, kingdom of Christ like? What's our culture? Look to the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy. Peace. What, patience? Kindness and goodness, I forget the order. Goodness, goodness, what gentleness, what else we got? Self-control, we miss, do we get patience? These are, these are the kind of values that help shape the culture of what it's like to hang out with our fellow Christians. And if I'm a good citizen, I'm a contributor to kingdom culture. It's not just about getting our theology right, getting our thinking straight, it's also how do I move through this world? How do I interact with people around me with love and with joy and with peace and with patience and kindness and goodness? This is, this is part of the culture I'm contributing to. And then defense. Defense. Uh, there may be times when if you are a good citizen, you are called to help defend. But you see, the kingdom of Christ means we defend our kingdom against the spiritual dark forces that are pressing in around us. So our defense, our war, is a spiritual warfare. As Greg was talking about earlier, the new covenant's not just a new covenant, it's a new kind of covenant. It's completely different. Because the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom is different. It's not a geographical kingdom. So we don't have physical war over physical land. In fact, if we go back one slide, uh, slide, folks, thanks. We get to 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What are these strongholds? Well, he goes on to explain. We demolish arguments and every pretension or high and lofty thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is a passage that sometimes we use to refer to our own internal thoughts. I have a wayward thought or a thought that I don't think is glorifying God. I'm gonna take that thought captive. And I suppose you could apply this verse to that scenario as a secondary application. But its primary application is that there's an aspect of our warfare against the enemy that is a mental war where, there, where the enemy is continually feeding into our society arguments. We demolish arguments. That is, 
ways of A leading to B leading to C that are supposed to lead people to the conclusion God's not real, God doesn't love you, Jesus is not the answer. There are sophisticated arguments. There's sometimes internet memes, they may be video, YouTube videos, they may be just cliches that your friends uh, are used to hearing and then passing on. But there are arguments and we, when we go to war, it's a mental war, we demolish those arguments. We say, well, no, that's not true because... I, I, can, I can push back against that with gentleness and respect, but I can say that particular thing you've just heard and then have been repeating, that's not true, and here's why. We can respond. We can actually, so we start to tear down the arguments. We demolish arguments. And every pretension, that's a high and lofty thought. Well, it's very sophisticated, it sounds, but in the end, if it's anti-Christ, we say, oh, no, 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 no. Wait a second. And we point out something to the contrary. And it's in that context that we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We say, no, that's not true. In fact, I'm going to seize that thought. I'm going to make that a POW, and I'm going to bring it back with me. I'm going to make it obedient to Christ, because the fact that you're asking that question, or you're saying that thing, may mean that I see that there's an openness in you to at least want to investigate what's ultimately true, or, or that you have a need in your life. I'm going to allow that to actually help lead us to Christ. Let's do this together. And so these strongholds that we tear down, we, we demolish strongholds. The, the word in Greek means a military base. There's a military, so the devil sets up military bases of bad ideas. Military bases of just bad ideas. They're just anti-truth. And they become popular in a given culture. And we go in and we tear them down. We say, we've got to demolish that military base of bad ideas. We need to come against them. So as citizens, there may be time where we go to war. Now as ambassadors, as ambassadors, you know, the difference, of course, a citizen is we're participating, making this a good country, meaning the kingdom of Christ country. And as an ambassador, we go into a foreign kingdom and we represent our kingdom to them. So, so if you were to be an ambassador, say, to France, on behalf of Canada, you would need to have knowledge, wisdom, and character. Knowledge, first of all. You would need to know what the policies are of our prime minister because you have to represent that in France, right? So you have to know your own country's policies and ideas and values well to be a good ambassador to another country. And so if you're going to be an ambassador of the kingdom of Christ, you've got to get to know Jesus well and his policies, his teaching, his ideas. Uh, then you need wisdom because it's not just enough to know your own country's policies. You need to know the language and the culture that you're moving into. You'd, if you went to France and you were going to be a good and effective ambassador, it would be really good if you knew French. And it would be really good if you understood the values of France so that you could translate things well, have them make sense. That's wisdom. And then character. Let's say you were the ambassador of Canada to France, and you were giving a speech at a fancy political dinner, and you stood up and you made a fantastic speech. You had knowledge, you were able to represent Prime Minister Trudeau very well, and you knew his policies, and you had enough wisdom to understand French culture, humor, you were witty and winsome. It was a great speech. Canada was proud, France was tickled pink with what a great ambassador you're being, and then you 
went back to your table and so pleased with yourself, you drank three more glasses of wine, got in your car, drove home and had an accident. What do you think the headline in the paper the next day would be? Canadian ambassador, what, fill in the blank, made a really fun speech? No, Canadian ambassador gets drunk, embarrasses Canada, has an accident. So all of the knowledge and all of the wisdom can be sabotaged by a lack of character. I'm just skipping the next three hours worth of material. <laughs> We're going to end it here. I mean, uh, yeah, that's good. That's a good place to end it. Yeah. Um, Q&A or, or just wrap it up? Uh, how are we? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, then. Okay. All right. Let's start opening Q&A before we wrap up. Any questions about anything I've said or left unsaid? Any passage of scripture we've looked at or the gospel in 30 words or anything about communicating your faith or how to apply or understand the gospel? Yes, sir. What's in the three hours you left behind there? <laughs> well, I just saved some material for tonight. It's <laughs> good. Okay, all right. Yes, there is something I could, I'll do it after Q&A. There is some more I could say. Yes. Thank you. Um, I'm struck by what you had just finished off with being able to argue well or argument well. How do we do that well without becoming argumentative? Excellent. Excellent. What a great question. How do we argue without becoming argumentative? How do we present our case well? Always begin. At least I can tell you how to get started. And if you get started on the right foot, hopefully it will go better for you. Always begin by asking questions. Always begin by asking questions. Questions will help you discern whether the person you're having a conversation with actually wants to learn or really just wants to fight. Right? Uh, questions will also help you learn more about them so that when you do say something, you will be aware of the culture. Even, the, even individual people have their own kind of culture. You'll be more aware of the culture into which you're speaking. So when someone seems to be saying things that are antagonistic or challenging, ask them some questions. Hey, when you say that, what do you mean by this? And may I say, ask more than one question because it's usually the second or third or fourth level follow-up question that really gets to the interesting stuff. So when you say, hey, why did you say that? And they say, well, because I heard this, that, and the other. And you say, whoa, oh, where did you hear that? And they say, well, I read it online. Oh, I'm sorry, was it from a reputable source? Or, well, have you read this? Or what? At the, when you get to the second, third, and fourth level questions, it gets really interesting. And you can get very far in a conversation without making any statements, but, but by mostly asking questions. Well, have you ever read the teachings of Jesus? Well, I don't know, maybe. I, oh, what did you think of them? Well, I don't know, actually, if I remember anything. Oh, well, maybe, what about this? What do you think about this? And you can mention a particular. But when you phrase things in the form of a question, it helps prevent people from becoming immediately defensive, keeps them open. If they just want to fight, it will expose that. And if they genuinely want to learn, it will help you see that as well. 
There's this beautiful story in Matthew's gospel where Jesus goes to Jerusalem and the Pharisees come to him and they ask him a question. And he, see, he models this exact principle. I'm, I'm ripping this off from Jesus. I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, the Pharisees say to him, so are you doing your miracles with the power of God or not? Simple question. And Jesus doesn't give them a yes or a no. He says, well, let me ask you a question. Do you know the question he asks? It's an interesting test. He says, do you think John the Baptist was from God or not? And then the Pharisees go into this like scrum together and they say, well, if we say that John the Baptist was from God, then he will say to us, why didn't you support him? Because we really didn't. But if we say John the Baptist wasn't from God, the people will be upset who are eavesdropping because they really liked John the Baptist and thought he was a prophet and we don't want to make enemies with them. Okay, all right, here we go. They come out of their scrum, they turn to Jesus and they say, we don't know. And then Jesus says, neither am I going to answer your question. Have a good day. <laughs> and that's it. Why answer their question? Jesus is saying, you weren't asking a question. You were just trying to lay a trap. You didn't actually want to know something. You wanted to catch me in something. And Jesus was able to discern that by asking them a question and see how they responded. And based on their deliberation, he realized, oh, you just want to joust. You just want to play a game. I don't have to enter this conversation. Questions will help you discern. So then once you discern, you may just say, I don't think you really want to have a conversation here. That's okay. I just bless you. Just bless you. How can I serve you? What can I, but you don't have to get suckered into the actual conversation. And then if you do discern they want to have a conversation, you'll know better the person you're talking to. Yeah, great. Questions are a beautiful tool that we often forget to use. Any other questions before we wrap up? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. <laughs> Yesterday when I was here, we were talking about uh, becoming mature Christians. Uh, that was mentioned. And I guess I'm a little green, but I'm wondering what does a mature Christian look like and how do we get there? Yeah. Well, it looks like Greg. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna say. Yeah, put, just put his picture. <laughs> I think we may have just touched on it when we talked about the fruit of the spirit. There's something about the fruit of the spirit that is this beautiful reveal. It's God saying, "Just so you know, my spirit's in you, and this is what my spirit is trying to work in you." Now, you can partner with that or not, but this is what my spirit is doing. Yes. When we work against it, we'll have the sense of living not as ourselves. And I was like, I'm not really being myself today. And sometimes you're not, because you were called to be a spirit-filled person living in tune with the Holy Spirit. So it's no mystery what God is trying to do in you. He's told you. He said, here are the characteristics that when people think of you, I want them to think of this list. And we all have our own distinct personalities, but joy can look different in different personalities. Love can look different in different personalities. So we're still ourselves. We're still different members of the body of Christ, but we have these things in common. And so as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, it's not a to-do list. I think, wow, it's a long list. I have to do it. It's a reveal list of the Spirit saying, well, this is what I am doing in you. Stop resisting. Let's do this together. So I would refer you back to the fruit of the Spirit. And then one other, one other thing I would uh, refer you to. And actually, this will be a good thing to close on, I think. Uh, it's 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
uh, is a passage we're going to look at tonight, but it really applies to what you're saying now. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us. So you've been given it. Now live in tune with what the Spirit is doing with you. Uh, through these, he has given us a very great and precious promise so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, partner with, have fellowship with the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by even desires. Now, it gets really applicable in the next few verses. Second Peter 1 now, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort. Ah, so God's given you everything and he's doing this in you, but now here's his invitation to partnership. But if it was just the invitation to partnership, it would feel like a lot of work on our own. But first he says, God's doing this in you. Now you make every effort, but your effort is only to partner with what God is already doing. So that's a beautiful invitation, so relational. So he says, so for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and a mutual affection, love. For if you possess, ah, catch this, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, it's beautiful. He doesn't even say the goal is that you've got to be perfect in all these things. He says, as God's already doing this in you, and you add your effort in partnership with him, your goal is just simply to grow in these things. Just see growth. Yeah, yeah. Just increasing measure. That's all. You just want to say, you know, a year, between the year ago and now, I see some growth. That's beautiful. And I'm able to do it just by being closer to God. He's working with me. And by the way, here's the warning if you don't do that. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted, blind to who they truly are, forgetting what they have, that they have already been cleansed from their past sins. Amen. Wow. And so if I'm not growing, he doesn't say, and if you don't, you will deserve the wrath of God. He said, if you don't, that's because you've forgotten who you really are. That's right. And so that ministry of reminding we talked about yesterday, we just come alongside, and, and maybe you come to someone else and say, I haven't seen growth. I need you to perform the ministry of reminding on me. Can you remind me who I really am and who God really is in me and that I can do? And we pour this grace into each other. He says, that if you're not growing, that's your problem. Just remember who you are. It's beautiful. Well, can I pray that we grow in partnership with the Holy Spirit? You want to stand up with me? Stretch. Let's stretch. Stand if you're able, and I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us into partnership with yourself, into fellowship, and how that reverses the polarity of sin that is pulling us apart, ripping us apart. I thank you that your spirit heals us and then pulls us close. I pray that we would be a people who grow in the fruit of the spirit in increasing measure because we remember who we are. We remember how you have cleansed us and made us new. And that every day then becomes an opportunity to celebrate that and to experience it to the full. Holy Spirit, we invite your guidance and your joy and your fruit and your courage and your grace. It's a privilege to be your people together. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people say, amen, amen. amen.